Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the New Books Network Gender Studies Podcast. My name is Taylor Fox-Smith, and it's my pleasure to introduce Michael Edward Stewart. Guiding this podcast into uncharted waters of late antiquity, we will be looking at his brilliant book, The Soldier's Life, Martial Values and Manly Romanitas in the Early Byzantine Empire. Taking us back to the 5th century, when the prowess of the Roman Empire was imbued with courage and militarism, it was the life of the soldier that symbolised and upheld these powerful values. This hegemonic masculinity, Stuart's tool of historical inquiry, manifests in high culture, politics and religion, each of which which depended on the imperial project of war. Navigating Christianity's influence on Byzantine society, Stuart explores whether theological constructions of manhood as ascetic and pacifist change the contours of manly romanitas. With secular and Christian sources, both literature and iconography, Stuart's mastery of the discipline uncovers praise for militarism across the religious divide. From the martial metaphors of Synesius of Cyrene to the paganism of the Emperor Julian to the piety of Theodosius, the soldier's life reminds us that gender has been constructed for centuries. The fluidity of boundaries and power in this ancient construct of masculinity makes a poignant case against restrictive binaries and static hegemony. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me here. Um, I'm happy to be here to discuss my book. It's so exciting that we get to delve into the Roman Empire. It's a first for the podcast and for me as well. So I think the best kind of kickoff point for us would be to ask you, what were the traditional codes of Romanitas and the way in which these played into the empire building project? And you use a term called masculine imperium. I'm wondering if we could start off with those two concepts as our starting point. Yeah, when we talk about masculine imperium, uh, most scholars on masculinity in both Republican Rome and in Imperial Rome talk about the idea that martial virtues and being a Roman man were one and the same. So we see in the Republic that even the most aristocratic and rich members of the elite had to serve as soldiers. Um, so in, a, in an empire where the majority of men were soldiers or at one time have been soldiers, it's no coincidence that codes of uh, masculine ideology were closely linked to the military life. Um, and when I started this study, I was introduced um, to the work of Craig Williams, mm-hmm. who actually um, goes back and looks at the idea. He writes it kind of anachronistically, explores uh, Roman He calls it Roman homosexuality, knowing that that term is anachronistic. But Mm -hmm. he's the one who I kind of stole the term masculine imperium. And what he talks about is that from the second century BCE to the fourth century CE was the idea that true Roman men who possessed virtus, which can be defined either as virtue or manuliness by birthright, rightfully exercised their dominion or imperium not only over women, 
but also over foreigners who were themselves implicitly likened to women. Mm -hmm. An obvious implication is that non-Roman peoples were destined to submit to Rome's masculine imperium. What that means is, is that there was kind of a twofold uh, thing with it. It was both inclusive and exclusive, which is kind of ironic. So if you weren't a Roman, um, you were inferior to Romans based on both their education and their natural tendency to uh, Romanitas. Mm-hmm. But ironically, the Roman Empire was very inclusive as well. And if you recognized the Roman emperor and you embraced Roman virtues, which was based around ideal living and how an aristocrat lived, you could also become Roman. So somewhat ironically, it was both exclusive and inclusive at the same time. This is really interesting, and I think a really great segue into the idea of the soldier's life. And perhaps that tandem inclusivity and exclusivity plays into who has access to that masculinity and the power attached to it. I'm wondering if you could talk to us about the soldier. What what was their role in the empire, and why was it that manliness was not only attached to them, but expressed by their role in that society? Well, soldiers were seen kind of like the shadowy original Romans. So the original Romans were kind of equal on the battlefield. There's lots of stories if you read the Roman sources You'll see a Roman emperor or even someone like Julius Caesar sharing the same food as his men, serving in the same conditions. So it's kind of very egalitarian. It's kind of an idea because in that society, which we really know was very elitist, Mm -hmm. it's kind of ironic that they go back to a period uh, where everyone is kind of they have this uh, same notion that that the loyalty is to the state and not to themselves. Whether this was ever really true is harder to argue, but it's kind of how people looked back on the earlier Romans. And when I was first getting into this topic, I was obviously thinking about my own culture and how in American society, um, elites of today kind of always look back on earlier generations, whether it was the generation from World War II or the generation from the 18 in the 1700s in the revolution. There's always an idea that our forebears who founded the nation were manlier than we were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, actually, this is great. In your introduction, you talk about the influence that 9-11 had on formulating your questions for this study. And you look at how this demilitarized upper class or a demilitarized elite, questioning how they could embrace militarism martial values, and this hyper-masculinity. Could you elaborate on that connection between the demilitarized and the militaristic? Yeah, I'll start with Rome. And the basic idea is that, yes, in Republican Rome, before the emperors, that we have a large percentage of the male population, aristocrat, middle class, and lower class, serving in the military. The general idea is as the emperors take over, as the empire expands and the Pax Romana spreads, is that gradually we have the creation of a more professional army and aristocrats from around the 3rd and 4th century do not serve in the military as as much. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the idea, the famous idea in the 4th and 5th century, which is uh, of the barbarization of the army, is that the army, instead of being led by Romans, is actually infiltrated by non-Romans. So this 
intrinsically Roman um, uh, uh, unit was becoming non-Roman. And you see this tension in a lot of the sources in a culture where identities are innately linked to military service. And when I was in America, it was a little bit the same because I um, only a small percentage, I think right now about 0.5% of the American population serves in the military. And the percentage of congressmen and senators that have have served in the military has declined rapidly over the last three centuries. Uh Um, And of course, around the time of 9-11, I was thinking of George Bush, um, who had served in the National Guard, but kind of as a way to avoid serving in Vietnam, kind of draped himself in martial, martial virtues. Um, it was also a period where a lot of students that I was going to school with after 9-11 abandoned school and looking for a cause joined the military. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was also the famous example of Pat Tillman, the NFL player, who became a real icon for American masculinity because he abandoned his contract with the Arizona Cardinals and joined those first, um, the first army that invaded Afghanistan and then was killed. It was only later on that we learned that he was killed by uh, his own troops. But when I saw that, I saw that these men that were came generally from the middle and lower classes, they were kind of, when they came back from service, they were looked at even more powerfully as more powerful examples of manhood than athletes, actors, politicians. So there's something innate in American society mm-hmm. uh, with the links between military service and masculinity. And then I started thinking, because I was, I was looking at the Roman Empire at the time, how does this, how, is it similar in the Roman Empire? Uh, because what we see gradually, we see the emperors from the 4th and 5th to 6th centuries mm-hmm. not serving in the military as well. So someone like Justinian, sends out his generals uh, to reconquer North Africa and Italy. Mm -hmm. But when they return, they bow down to him and he takes, he basks in all the military glory. So I originally thought, can I understand my own culture Mm -hmm. by looking back and understanding how demilitarized people um, can share in the glory and what I call a shared masculinity of its soldiers without even having to fight themselves. Yeah, this is a really interesting point, the shared masculinity. I love that. And I think that chapter four, you look at the manly emperor is the title of that chapter. And there are two interrelated ideas that I think listeners would really like to hear about. And I'll explain both of them now and then break the questions up. So First of all, you talk about um, how the military defeat at Andrianople in 378 signified a crisis to the writers of this history, signified a crisis in Roman masculinity. And they also bring up this idea of the military eunuch, which I will get you to explain um, to the listeners, but this somewhat idea that a third gender could be tied into these representations. The second part of this chapter is that there's this paradoxical presence of an idealized, militarized masculinity, but also a leadership that is increasingly demilitarized. Uh, so first of all, let's go to the, the crisis of Roman masculinity in that military defeat and the idea of the military eunuch. Okay, so we're talking about the 4th century, and during the 4th century, the emperor is still very much a man that when he's proving his Andrea virtus or courage, 
needs to actually do that in a literal sense. Mm -hmm. So we see Constantine and his sons, Constantius II and Julian and Valentinian and Valens. They actually are leading Roman armies into battle. Now, two things happen. Julian, first of all, in 363 is killed on campaign in Persia. Mm -hmm. And then subsequently, uh, Valens is killed on campaign at the Battle of Adrianople by the Goths um, in 378. So what we see is we, we see the last emperor that goes on military campaign is actually Theodosius. Mm-hmm. And, under, and under his sons, Arcadius and Honorius, the empire is also divided. So we go from having a united empire to one that's ruled by two of his sons who, by most estimations, are both inept and unable to serve in the military. And in fact, are kind of ruled by their military advisors. This is kind of the climate that we see a revival of what we call classical historiography. Mm -hmm. We see Ammianus Marcellinus write the last great Roman history in the classical style. What makes Ammianus really interesting is that he writes in the city of Rome, but he actually hails from Antioch in the east, which means he was both a Greek So he was not writing in his native language. And even more importantly, he's one of the few soldiers that has left behind any literary record for us. And we know that he was an officer that had served under Julian um, and that he had uh, moved quite high up in the Roman army. He then, for reasons we don't know, um, ends up in Rome. Mm -hmm. Eunapius, our other Greek historian, is kind of more typical of what we see of the literati. He's one of these rich aristocrats that's probably a landed elite. He doesn't serve in the military, but ironically in his writings, he praises uh, the virtues of the soldiers and condemns what he sees as the unmanly actions of a very few, both the emperors and some of the generals at the top. Mm-hmm. So it's quite Interesting. Um, and what we see in Ammianus is when he returns to Rome, he's been fighting campaigns all across the Roman ro- world. And when he enters Rome, he sees what he sees as a corrupt Roman manliness. So in, he, he has a famous quote where he says, instead of leading Roman soldiers in battle, the Roman aristocrats that he met in Rome were lead, being led around by their eunuchs in his extravagant outfits. <laughs> so they had become the exact opposite of what a Roman man was. Right. Um, and what, yeah, so so what's happened is, is we see this quite a bit, is that, that the city of Rome itself, the men within it had become corrupt. And a lot of, if you read Ammianus' history, you can see it as a call for Roman men from the elite to reclaim a lost manliness, because he talks a lot about the manly forebears. He d- it's gloomy, but he doesn't give up hope. He still has the idea that it can be recovered. What you kind of sense is that he's thinking it's not actually going to be recovered by the aristocrats in Rome, mm-hmm. but soldiers like him, who were both literate, as we can see, he must have received a high level of education, but also were willing to sacrifice for the country. Right. Um, so I found that quite interesting. But eunuchs, 
play an interesting role in the historiography of this period because it's in the 4th and 5th centuries that we see a real isolated court growing up um, around the emperor. So previously, where emperors were surrounded by their soldiers and from uh, men from the aristocracy played key roles in the government, increasingly emperors like Arcadius and Honorius are hidden away in the court and instead of having Roman advisors frequently have non-Romans in their high service and eunuchs. And eunuchs are the only one that are allowed to be in the bedchambers or close to the emperor. Right. And it's yeah. So they access to the emperor is becoming more and more difficult. And it's interesting that in these histories, the emperor really is a shadowy figure. But the main villains in many of these history, of course, are the court eunuchs and famously uh, Eutropius, um, who serves as a court eunuch, but also serves as a commander of a uh, of a Roman army um, in the east. This Amazing. Support, yeah, so he's kind of the first soldier eunuch emperor. And funny enough, there's a reason why eunuchs are often soldiers. First of all, one of the places where uh, the emperor can be usurped is from a, a powerful military general. So they're always fearing that a general is going to usurp them. Uh-huh. Eunuchs were innately tied to the emperors they served. So you always see it when an emperor dies or he's overthrown. The first people who die are his eunuchs. So they, they're intensely loyal. They're also armed. Um, so they're much more martial than we think. But, of course, this caused a big uproar, and we see Claudian, another Easterner writing in the Western court, decrying that the, uh, the, the, the intrinsically masculine role of the soldier was being, uh, was being, uh, being uh, that eunuchs were now serving as soldier. Because, um, as the work of Catherine Ringrose and Sean Tuffer has shown, eunuchs were kind of... Uh, they had kind of a liminal role in Byzantine society, though ma- most people now consider that they were always considered male and sex and mostly male and gender. Mm-hmm. They could also in some ways be seen as a third gender. Um, so it, it, it's quite interesting that they, they kind of, um, and Matthew Kiefler argues and Matthew Kiefler is important to me because he's, he's uh, the, the teacher that first introduced me to this world Matthew Kiefler has written a book uh, that highly me. It's called The Manly Eunuch. Yeah, and it was this idea, what the eunuch did is it kind of showed the Romans that what they thought were barriers between the masculine and the uh, feminine were not as permanent because they saw both masculine and feminine gender traits in eunuchs often. Uh, so, so it's quite interesting um, that we do see a big reaction in the fourth century against eunuch generals. Okay. This, yeah, so, um, but we do, the, the eunuch generals make a comeback, and ironically, the general uh, that wins the final victory for Justinian in in Italy in the 550s, he's Narciss, a, a some people think at that time an 80-year-old eunuch was leading the Roman armies to victory. And we do see a series in Byzantine history of eunuchs uh, serving in military roles. This is fascinating. What a fascinating 
persona to have had in that time, probably a hidden history in that time as well. Um, If we can move then to the second part of that chapter, which is this paradoxical presence of militaristic masculinity still being that that ideal and hegemonic masculinity. And something that I suppose that eunuch plays into as well is that fluidity of masculinity. But there also was after Theodosius the first, after Theodosius the first, after his death, there was an increasingly demilitarized leadership, which we've already spoken about. That chapter also speaks about um, Emperor Julian. Would you be able to possibly give us a bit of like a summary of Emperor Julian? He's he's the last pagan empire, emperor. Is that correct? He is, and um, he starts off. He's called the apostate. He he starts off obvious as a Christian. He's um, He's um, the nephew to Constantine. But what's happened, um, our first Christian emperor, Constantine, his sons, um, uh, acting very much not like good Christians, managed to kill each other (laughs) over the rule. Constantius II uh, murders most of Julian's family. The problem Constantius II has is He's running out of of family members to help him rule. So he sends Julian, who at that time was busy becoming what we call a philosopher. Mm -hmm. So Julian, all he really cared about was learning Greek literature. Um, And for a philosopher at that time, the last thing a philosopher wanted to do was involve himself in the world of the military or politics at all. Um, So we see Julian... Um, being sent by Constantius in the early uh, part of the second half of the uh, fourth century, being sent to Gaul, uh, which is modern France. And at that time, Gaul was under severe threat. It was it was about to collapse. It looked like the Alemanni and the Franks were about to take Gaul away from the Romans. Mm-hmm. Julian, um, from what we see from all the sources, ended up being a really good general. Um, and ironically, um, unexpectedly, most people think to Constantius II, he had a series of pretty major victories, not as major as uh, his backers suppose, but big victories in the West, which then become a problem um, for Constantius II. So Constantius, like what happens, raises an army and goes to depose Julian, who in the meantime has been raised as a rival emperor by his soldiers. Um, they're going to have a big conflict, but Constantius II dies on the way um, to meet Julian. Mm-hmm. Sometime before this, we know that Julian had had turned against um, uh, Christianity, um, and he declared himself. Now, now he's the type of pagan he is, we're not quite sure. His paganism is very much based on a Christian form of uh, worship. But Ammianus has a great comment. He talks about um, Julian, that they would have had a scarcity of cattle because he was always uh, sacrificing cattle to read the uh, fortunes through their insides. So we know that Julian is trying to turn back the tide of what had now been a Christian Roman Empire for about two decades. Um, Now, obviously, for Christians in the empire, especially in the East, this is problematic. And in Christian uh, histories, Julian is the big enemy. What's what's surprising, though, is after Julian dies, 
he he has a really good reputation in he's the hero of Eunapius and Ammianus. And people used to think it's because they were pagans and that the idea that they're in the fifth century, at the end of the fifth century, that there was a, a big resistance by pagans, kind of a last stand. However, this has recently been overturned. And it's now thought but by the time Theodosius ruled that paganism was actually a spent force, um, that there wasn't really a last pagan stand. And when I looked at the... Um, depictions of Julian, these heroic portraits in Ammianus and Eunapius, what I found, there was very little discussion of his actual religious practices. In fact, Ammianus kind of looked, uh, kind of saw him as a bit superstitious. Mm -hmm. What they really brought to the forefront was his military qualities and his abilities to be both a philosopher, um, but both a philopolemist, a lover of warfare, and a lover of uh, of learning. So they really use the martial imagery and Julian as both an ideal emperor and an ideal man to kind of, I think, um, argue against what's happening in the courts of Arcadius and Honorius, this kind of demilitarization of the imperial uh, office. And we, we, in fact, see Julian praised in 5th and 6th century um, Christian authors as well, which is quite surprising. And they talk about his great level of learning and his martial capabilities, which which I found surprising and interesting. Yeah, right, because I think that what we start to see as we get into the, the middle of the book is that there are actually alternative pathways for achieving true manliness. Well, at least that's what I was gauging from how you were reading sources and I suppose that the impact that Christianity had on constructions of masculinity perhaps restructured gender as well. I'm wondering if you would be able to tell us how you think Christianity changed ideas of masculinity towards the latter end of the Roman Empire. Great. I'll start. I always have to start with the end of the Republic because okay. most um, most um, scholars on masculinity um, – in the Roman Empire, in the early Byzantine Empire, recognize that a big shift happens in the Republic. As we get less and less of these aristocrats serving in the army, we see alternate pathways to manliness being developed. Mm -hmm. that, mean, that means we see, um, we see these aristocrats fighting what we call internal battles. Um, they, uh, they fight internal battles against themselves, controlling themselves, Giving speeches in publics becomes a way of displaying your manliness. We, we, we see a lot of different pathways to becoming a man. Um, Colin Conway, who's looked at um, New Testament uh, images of Christ, also sees multifaceted images of Christ in the New Testament. So we have a very non-Roman Christ who, who passively goes to his execution. We also have in Revelations a type of Christ masculinity that's much more in line to what we would see on Roman codes of masculinity. And I think it's always important to understand that Christianity developed in the shadows of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. So... So when we see at the early martyrs' lives, the martyrs are kind of the first Christian heroes. 
we often see the martyrs act facing their deaths with the steely courage and determination that's frequently seen from Roman soldiers when they face their own deaths. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, when you read early holy men's lives, they fight battles, but they fight battles against invisible enemies. So instead of foreign soldiers, you see the trumpet calls of demons, and they're fighting these internal battles. So it's really uh, interesting how they create kind of a metaphorical martial manliness. Right. Of course, we do have to deal with the idea. There's kind of two ideas in uh, current call scholarship. This older idea that early Christianity was pacifist versus the idea of someone like Felipe Bach that also says that there was an aggressive aspect towards Christianity or even before uh, it becomes what we can say more Romanized under Constantine. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 very interesting, and I think in the book I use the example of the Bishop Ambrose. Yes, and, and Ambrose is is raised very much like a typical Roman elite. Um, when he becomes bishop, it's not something he really was seeking out. He's just the big man in the city, um, and he's called to be bishop. He has problems with the emperors, uh, who at that time was Valentinian II in the West and Theodosius in uh, in the East. We see um, him confronting um, the emperors for the first time. Um, we also see him fighting both, we can say, spiritually uh, spiritual battles against his enemies. So he sees himself as using soldiers of Christ, Mills Christi, to fight his enemies. And he also um, embraces his role as a secular leader, um, enticing uh, Roman soldiers to back um, actual emperors. So it's really interesting. We see them moving between this this kind of metaphorical martial manliness and the traditional role in the real world that a Roman aristocrat would play in motivating soldiers. So I, I think it's it's, it's, it's quite interesting. Right. So let's move on to Chapter 8. You and I were speaking earlier before the interview about the Gothic Wars, and you brought up this really interesting battle that simultaneously to these battles of the internal and the external of the man, there was also the battles over ownership of Roman identity. And I'm wondering if we can look at these Gothic war- Wars and, and what that battle for nationhood comprised of. Yeah. Um, first, I'll explain to the audience just what we're talking about when we talk about the Gothic Wars. Great. What ha- what happens in the fifth century is we see the emergence of post-imperial kingdoms. Some people call them the beginning of, of barbarian states, whilst others will argue that they're in a way micro-Romes. Mm-hmm. So we see in the 430s and 440s, uh, the Vandals take away North Africa from the uh, Romans. And in the 490s, Theroderick um, leads his Goths into Italy, ostensibly to um, support the Eastern Emperor Zeno's policies, but he quickly established himself as an independent leader. Mm -hmm. So we see that Italy and North Africa, two of the key Roman provinces, have slipped out of imperial power. Now, This lasts until the reign of Justinian. Um, 
Justinian in the 530s, using uh, religious reasoning, saying he's protecting Christians that are being persecuted in Vandalic North Africa, sends an invasion force, a pretty small force of about 28,000 men, and quickly recaptures the Vandals' empire in North Africa. Most people think that this then encourages him to try to kick the Goths out of Italy. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have a story of this campaign, and Procopius uh, provides, it's one of the few extant histories we have, provides a complete tale of the long, nearly 20-year campaign um, to reconquer Italy uh, from the Goths. Now, ironically, the Romans, the Italo-Romans that live in Italy at the time, don't immediately recognize the Eastern Romans as their saviors. Mm -hmm. We, in fact, see that they had been living fairly happily under Gothic rule. And what we kind of see is that the Goths had become kind of the martial saviors, and the aristocrats were kind of allowed to live the life they had always been living under Rome. So Jonathan Arnold actually argues in a recent study on Theroderick that Theroderick shouldn't be seen as a barbarian king, but as a new Roman emperor, and that he tried to present himself as such, Right. <laughs> which, is, which is very interesting. Uh, ironically, what we'll see in Gothic and Italian-Roman propaganda, they don't portray the Eastern Romans as fellow Romans. They like to portray them as unmanly in non-martial Greeks, which is which is quite interesting because the Greeks, for some reason, had acquired a reputation in the Roman Empire for unmanliness. So you, you see that they're not immediately accepted as Romans. And when Procopius and the Eastern Roman armies move into Byzantium, they, they kind of start to see the Italian Romans as themselves as not Romans either because they had abandoned their martial roles. So it's quite interesting. We, we see a contrast between the Eastern Romans who are presenting themselves as the real Romans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's based a lot on this idea that they are the true heirs to Aeneas, um, that they're the real Romans and that the Romans in Ro- the city of Rome were no longer Roman because they had abandoned their military rules, roles. Right. And right. you just kind of see these, as we talked about earlier, we see this first in Ammianus. So it's kind of what we're dealing with today. What is the identity? What makes someone Australian? What makes someone Roman? What makes someone American? For, for the, uh, for the Italian Romans and people in the 6th century, it quite often was you needed to at least have served in the military, um, which once again is a double-edged role because it also offers – the non-Romans who serve in the Byzantine military, mm-hmm. a real easy means to become um, become Romans. So we see that when we think of a strict dichotomy between Romans and barbarians in the army, it's not quite as simple as that. In some ways, um, our authors consider non-Romans in the fighting in the Roman armies as more Roman than aristocrats that have been living in, in Rome for centuries. Um, And I do think we see a little bit of that in modern society because in the military, a lot of not one of the quickest ways to be accepted as an American is to have served in the military. 
And I think we saw a lot of that in Trump's um, attack of the uh, Muslim soldier that had died fighting for the U.S. Army. Mm-hmm. There was a much bigger reaction when he attacked that Muslim American than when he attacked anyone else. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because he had served in the military. So that gave him a code of Americanness that notes doing any other job wouldn't have given him. Not if he was a basketball player, not if he was a banker. I think by only serving in the military, you then more easily, rapidly become part of these highly militarized societies. Right. So I think that that particular code there of attaining a national identity through the performance of masculinity. I'm wondering if during your study, study, and you do touch on this in a few chapters, if you could share with our listeners the way in which that dichotomy of, I suppose, manly and unmanly, did femininity or womanhood play in to these constructions in that society, but also in your research as well of how that history has been written? Yes. And funny enough, when I, uh, one of the big complaints about those of us um, who study gender history is this idea that when we're looking at Romans or other cultures in the past, is that we're applying modern conceptions, the idea that we're being anachronistic. Mm-hmm. The funny thing is, is I found reading the sources and looking at visual art, is that issues of masculinity and femininity permeate the literature. The issue was actually quite much more important for them than it seems to be for us. Mm-hmm. So what you find is that men, because, because um, the masculine ide- ideal is so kind of high and impossible to follow. It's something that everyone's trying to obtain, but it's not something that you can hold on to. You don't become an, an Andreas man. You can lose it quite easily as well. So we kind of see these contests going on, whether you're an aristocrat, whether you're a soldier. They're always trying to be seen as masculine and this idea of the universalized masculine And femininity for men is used as a way to condemn them. And you're always you're you're always in danger of falling into the realm of femininity, which brings us to the other thing. What about it doesn't mean that the Romans didn't all also praise feminine virtues, which they did. I think I think we can talk about this kind of ladder of gender difference. There's kind of the universalized masculine. Um, There's also feminine virtues. So you can see. Uh, Roman empresses displaying virtues that were considered ideal feminine virtues. So I don't want people to think that they only um, worship the masculine. But it's really funny. um, When you read the Roman sources, when they're praising, even in Christian sources, when they're praising the genderless ideal, it's it's quite often the masculine ideal in disguise. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think we, um, I use the example of Almulasuntha, who's a Gothic queen, and Procopius praises her, but in doing so, he talks about her masculine virtues, that her good virtues are her manliness, right. <laughs> which is quite ironic. So to be women, where we see a manly woman as not feminine, they saw manly women as a good thing. Yeah, right. Well, I think that for a final question, it might actually be taking all of that and really getting you to share with us why it is that masculinity 
um, can be an insightful tool for historical inquiry and what you think it brings to an analysis of antiquity. And if you could please, I, I got the luxury of having to speak to you before the interview and you shared with me how you think that this may in fact help with analyses of, of present day foreign policy, of present day issues such as movements like ISIS and the way in which we can see these continuums across time through tools like gender. Yeah. Okay. So when we talk about masculine ideals, it's not something that's just disseminated from the very top down through the bottom. So we see that the Eastern Roman Empire, the, 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 who we call the Byzantines or the Byzantines, considered themselves as Romans. They really never dis- used the term Byzantine. And part of the re- way that they are able to continue with this Roman identity is how they link themselves with the manly Romanitas of their earlier forebears. So we see in the 11th century, um, this, this Michael Athelides is trying to explain why the Byzantine Empire is running into trouble against the Turks. And he tells his fellow soldiers it's because they've forgot forgotten the virtues of their Republican forebears. And, and I'll just quote it uh, quickly. He says, mm-hmm. for the noble Romans of that time, and he's talking about Republican Rome, did not strive for money in the acquisition of wealth, but simply for renown, the demonstration of their manliness and their country's safety and splendor. Now, he's talking about pagan Romans, and he's considers himself a Roman living in a Christian empire. But he's linking himself to a culture and a kind of a shadowy memory of an idealized vision of his forebears. And we kind of see this, we definitely see this happen um, in America, um, where Americans are always looking at a time back when they were pure, whether that's when they were fighting the Revolutionary War against the English, and it was a very egalitarian cause, where we have the leaders of the emerging new United States fighting against the British, or if it's in World War II, where 40% of the eligible population uh, serves in battle. And they're, called, um, and that, they're idolized by the new generation. But we see it also conversely with ISIS. ISIS looks back on a time when things were simpler, when they were a warrior elite that emerged from the deserts of the Middle East to take down the two biggest emperors of the time, which was in Persia and in the uh, Eastern Roman Empire. Um, and they're always kind of looking back on these simpler times where men were men, women were me- women, and all of their soldiers fought for the good of the state. The problem we have is that it's quite imaginary, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, so, so when I see the U.S. and ISIS fighting each other, they actually fall, are following quite similar ideologies based on this ideal that they are these true martial and manly people that have a mandate to rule the world and, ha- and establish their own masculine imperium through their superior martial manliness. Wow. <laughs> well, it just speaks to the fact that this book is not only an insight into a historical period, centuries before ours, but also its significance and relevance and parallels to issues that are happening today. It's really been such a pleasure to speak with you, Michael. I'm so pleased to have read the book. Um, 
What is next for you in your research journey? Do you have another book on the cards, research, teaching? What is it that we can look forward to? Um, well, I've got a couple. I've got a big article coming out in the Journal of Late Antiquity, uh, just on the very things we were talking about on Procopius's vision of the Italo Romans as not real Romans. I've also been working. I have some articles coming out on military eunuchs, mm-hmm. uh, and in the Australian Association of Byzantine Studies, twenty-one, which should be out in the next month or two. Um, and I'm working on a book on on Procopius. And I will be going to um, Kalamazoo, Michigan, for the biggest conference in the world on medieval studies to talk on the notions of the links between courage and fear in my favorite author, the 6th century Byzantine historian Procopius. Fantastic. Well, Michael, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much.